Welcome to Better Words, a podcast for readers who want to know the stories behind the pages. We're your hosts, Caitlin and Michelle, two book nerds who bring you in-depth conversations about writing and publishing from those on the inside. Basically, we're just here to talk about books. We're so glad you're joining us. Hello, welcome to another episode of Better Words. I'm Caitlin. I feel like I never ever say that. No, I know we never introduce ourselves. We never do. I just I just jump in and say, "Hi, Michelle. How are you?" And it's like, yeah. But anyway, um, so this week, um, for our standard rotation of recommendations and book club, should be a book club. And here's the funny thing that doesn't actually happen to us all that often (laughs) is that we weren't really feeling the book that we had chose. So we've switched to recommendations and next week will be a book club instead. Yeah. And I should say the book that we chose is really objectively good, but it's also quite Not all books are book club books, you know? Yeah, it's a very different writing style, which also makes it quite difficult to discuss as well. It's a it's very different, um, but it sort of makes it hard to to bring up things to discuss about. And also, if I'm completely honest, I wasn't rushing to keep picking it up. So, I, yeah. Anyway, we decided to do recommendations instead. Um, so, yeah, and then we're going to do hopefully – a book club um if we can decide on one because <laughs> we've been like going back and forwards in our texts um yeah so yeah always I thought there's too many books there's too many good books exactly <laughs> and yeah as we said you know like I still plan on finishing this book and so like sometimes book is just not a book club book but yeah but yeah so what are you going to recommend to us instead Michelle Well, this um, came recommended to me by my good friend Alicia, um, and it is One Ordinary Day at a Time by Sarah J. Harris. Um, And I really, I literally didn't know anything about it, but um, just like when you and I recommend things to each other and we just know that the other person's going to like it, she was like, I really think you need to read this book. I think you'll really like it. It's really good. And um, I had it from the library for a while actually and started reading it on the plane down to Sydney and I read it most of that week um and actually like it's quite long for a contemporary book I feel um but I really really enjoyed it so it's a dual perspective narrative which love that the author also wrote the book The Colour of B. Larkham's Murder which I've heard a lot of people recommend so I feel like I definitely need to go and check that out now anyway one ordinary day at a time is about these two people Simon and Dodie and it um swaps between them basically Simon we learn was like I guess like this child genius and he was on this um tv show called Little Einsteins when he was a kid but it's like we learn more and more and I I don't want to say it's like it is a bit of a spoiler, I guess, but I also think it's important as like a bit of a trigger warning is that we learn that his dad was quite abusive in Mm. forcing him to learn all these things and to be a genius as well. Um, Oh, I see. Yeah. So, yeah, so he's still dealing with the fallout of that in his life as well. Um, And then 
he is working at like a fast food chain um, and he meets the new person, Jodie, who is a single mom. She has left an abusive relationship. So again, a bit of a trigger warning there that there is details of abuse like between Simon's father and Simon and also between Jodie and her ex. They sort of go into a little bit of what happens. So like just feel like it's it's a brilliant book, but I feel like it's important to say that. Yeah. (laughs) Um and so Jodie is a single mum and she's doing it really tough. She's really struggling to make ends meet but she has this big dream of studying literature at Cambridge because when she was in high school she had this wonderful teacher who you know changed her life introduced her to books and she just sort of didn't get the chance to follow through with that because she um, got pregnant and had her son quite early so she sort of realizes that Simon's this you know, genius who went to Cambridge and stuff as well. And she's like, oh my God, you can help me. Please, will you like tutor me and help me get into Cambridge? And, you know, from there, classically, as these things happen in a contemporary novel, they change each other's lives in different ways. (laughs) (laughs) A classic, and so they change each other's lives story. Yeah, (laughs) but it's not not a romance. It's not a rom-com. It's much more just a a character-driven book. Lovely. Yeah, but it's so it's so funny, like I was sort of halfway through it and I'm like, wow, there is just so much more in this book than I sort of expected. And it's like, I feel like it's over 400 pages, which again, quite long for like, I feel like a contemporary novel. Yeah. When I tell you that premise, it doesn't seem like there would be that much, but yeah. 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 So I, oh. I think that you need to read it. I think you'll enjoy it. Even though it's, it's not like a romance at all, but I know it's one that you'll probably enjoy as well. And it was yeah. just a a lovely recommendation. Um, and it was just funny because I had sort of been like, oh yeah, okay. I'll definitely keep an eye out for it. And then went to the library and literally saw it as a new book on the shelf. And I was like, okay, well I have to get it now. It's a like, sign. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it has just been sitting on my shelf for a while, but I'm really glad I picked it up. So yeah, it was very moving, beautiful, loved the characters, just really got into it. Classic why I love contemporary novels situation. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that sounds so fun. <laughs> Um, my recommendation, <laughs> yeah, my recommendation this week um, is not really one that needs any extra attention or recommendation necessarily, but I have in saying that I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to, and so this week I read Book Lovers by Emily Henry, um, obviously the author of Beach Read and You and Me on Vacation or People We Meet on Vacation. I honestly forget which is which. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know which is the Australian title. Anyway, Book Lovers <laughs> follows Nora, who is a literary agent, and Charlie, who is an editor. And their like prologue or whatever is like two years ago, they had lunch once And Charlie didn't want to buy the book that would go on to be Nora's like best clients, highest, you know, big commercial. It was like a really big commercial success. And in the prologue, when they have lunch, Charlie's like, this is not her best work. And Nora's like, no, but it's going to be massive. And he still didn't want it. So it does go on to be a massive commercial success. It's set in a town in North Carolina, I think it was, called Sunshine Falls. 
And what ends up happening about a couple of months before Nora's sister is going to have her third child is they run away on a summer holiday to Sunshine Falls where the book is set. And turns out Charlie is from there and that's why he didn't like it. Um, So this is a nice recap for anyone who didn't know the plot, which is you, Michelle, which is why I'm telling you. Yeah, (laughs) it is me. (laughs) Um, So it's... It really leans in to those classic rom-com romance novel, like Hallmark movie things where it's like the ice queen girlfriend back home, Nora, the guy you think you will never end up with, the small town magic and charm and you know, and the, the like hot carpenter in the small town that you're like, oh my God, he'll change my life. I'll fall in love. And it's like, that's not real though. And like all of those things, it leans into all of the tropes and still kind of twists them in a way that like, obviously it's predictable, but still really enjoyable. And I actually really quite liked the characters and, and it doesn't end with them like oh we'll just stay in our small town forever like (laughs) and abandon our big city jobs and dreams and everything like that so like it doesn't have a because like that's what I always think watching those movies and stuff hey you're like uh what about your job though like you're just gonna move to Mm -hmm. the middle of nowhere yeah (laughs) yeah and like in the last five minutes it's like you got promoted and you fell in love so I don't know it's not to me at least I didn't find any of that annoying I thought it had a nice ending it was really fun so yeah I actually enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I was going to because I know Michelle you didn't particularly love Beach Read which I haven't read and I didn't Look, particularly only... love You and Me on Vacation because I found it like that predictable in an annoying way I only didn't like it because you know the asexual in me just yeah you know the, you know the steamy romance person it's boring. It's so boring. I don't care. It really so... can, it, it totally can be. And sometimes I'm like, yeah, like it is like, oh, we get it, you know. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. yeah, but no, I thought this one was fun. That's it's it's just me. And, like, and you know, honestly, like was like enough. Yeah. Realizing that about myself though made a lot more sense. I was like, oh, right. That's why I don't really find this interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, but I can totally see the appeal and I can see why something super fun like that would be a great, like that's why she's so popular as well. So yeah, I know. I should give that one a go. I don't know. I would. There's there's like one and it's like barely anything in my opinion. I don't know. So maybe there were just more in Beach Read. I don't know. Maybe. Well, see, now I'm I'm curious. And so now I think I might try and read Beach Read because I'm like, have like has she just gotten better this is her third book now so I'm I'm just a big fan of the Mamma Mia like dot 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 like (laughs) it's because I don't care (laughs) oh my god I can just hear dot 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 that's what they did in the olden days (laughs) (laughs) dot 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 Ah, honey honey anyway so that's our recommendations (laughs) (laughs) what we've been reading recently love that yes Yes, I love that. Um, Wonderful. Well, we hope you enjoy that and please um, enjoy the interview as well. This this particular book, as you will hear, is a little bit out of our comfort zone. Not the classic contemporaries that we've just recommended. No, which is very much in our lanes. But Yeah. yeah, but we really had a lot of fun with this one and we hope you do too. 
Our guest today is from Cape Town in South Africa and now lives on the west coast of Ireland. She's worked as an art museum guide, library assistant, theatre duty manager and an actor in children's musicals. We love a musical, so we really love this. She has a PhD from the University of Cape Town, where she also taught for many years. She won the Kane Prize in 2006 and the Philida Award in 2022. She writes short stories, young adult fantasy and thrillers. Her YA debut, The Wren Hunt, was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards, but today we are discussing her engrossing new novel, Blood to Poison. Welcome to Better Words, Mary Watson. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. I I almost want to just ask you about children's musicals, but we should probably talk about the book. We might we might circle back around to that. that. Um, what we really should just start with, of course, is for those who haven't read it yet, can you just tell us a bit about what Blood to Poison is about? Sure. So Blood to Poison is a story of 17-year-old Savannah and Savannah is afflicted by a family curse. In the family, in their family, there are women, every one woman, every generation is cursed to die young. So Savannah um, realizes that she needs to take action to save herself. Another side effect of the curse is that as the women come into their last months or years of their lives, they start getting really, really angry. So Savannah's finding that she's getting increasingly angry. She needs to do something. Otherwise, she's on track to die before too long. So she discovers the secret magical underbelly in Cape Town and has to basically confront these really dark, sinister witches who will do um, anything to get what they want. It's such a good book, so thrilling. And it's like, it's quite a chunky, it's quite a chunky book to read, but I just was racing through it because... Um, and so but, however, for like really big fantasy readers, it's not chunky, Michelle. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I, yeah, it's chunky for me. Okay, and, but, but everyone will know we're not the biggest fantasy yeah, we fans, don't, Mary. We don't so really read fantasy. This like <laughs> modern contemporary, yeah. like you know, kind of light fantasy, like magic in the real world, is exactly what we love, and so we really enjoyed this one. Size is a funny thing because I don't like my books to be too long. I try to keep it yeah. um, short. So as, as you know, in the beginning, as you start writing, it's like growing the word count. Yes, you'll be getting to these markers. Oh, I'm at this, I'm at 50,000, I'm at 60, at 70. But then by the time I get to 80,000, it's like, yeah, we don't want to go beyond this now. So I'm basically <laughs> I'm trying to do it at some point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 80,000 is my sweet spot, but Blood to Poison is a bit longer than the others. And it was just, you know, it was as short as I could, as it had to be. But it's longer than I wanted it to be. So, you know, I don't think there's anything extra in it. It definitely, like, it feels, you just caught in it. Like, I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's really pacey. And, yeah, people might be listening to this who listen to um, a lot of our interviews and thinking this doesn't sound like the sort of book that you girls usually read. (laughs) But we also say that we will read anything with a feminist punch and this is quite so feminist feminist (laughs) and just like exploring race and female anger and it's just wonderful so I I guess that's something that we'd like to dive into as well so this starts with a note from yourself um, and it says that the curse in this was actually inspired by something in your own family can you tell us a little bit more about that absolutely um so from when I was a child I knew I would hear my aunts and my mother and my grandmother talking about my one of my aunties who um, died when she was 21. So it was very tragic. She was one of those people who was very magnetic and charismatic and lit up a room and then she entered it. Like my mother, you know, would talk about it with such joy. 
um, but she 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 died very tragically, and um, she had a ring which was a rose gold pearl ring. This ring always was t- said to be cursed. That um, if anybody wore the ring, it would bring hardship, maybe even early death. So there was like this big idea of this ring that was cursed, and really captured my imagination as a child. And then later on, as I grew up, I became the keeper of the ring. But um, and I remember when I put the ring on for the first time, like I really felt that sense of loss from my mother, from my grandmother, from all my aunts. And I felt sort of a connection with this woman that I've never actually met. Um, and which just really struck me as something like whether the ring was cursed or not didn't matter because it was a connection that the ring forged between four different generations of women um, yeah. through their grief, through the sense of loss. And I thought, well, that's really something that could be quite interesting, the idea of a connection between different generations, an emotional connection connection between generations through the idea of a curse because the ring was obviously considered to be cursed and then I kind of played around with that and turned it you know from real life into fiction. I just am so interested in the fact that it was kind of sparked by this thing that is in your family because I feel like anyone listening is probably hearing this story about you know this like a ring that belonged to someone in your family and everyone talks about her and but like, because she died so young, the ring is thought to be cursed and you, you're not supposed to wear it, but you're obviously supposed to keep it and it gets passed through your family. Yeah. And I just think like, of course, a fantasy author would latch onto that and write something. That's, it's quite a something, story. Something else that's really strange about the ring. So I am the keeper of the ring and I brought it with me. I did wear it once or twice, but you know, it's a bit. <laughs> you're not supposed it. to. You're not supposed to wear the cursed ring. And then I'm, I brought it with me to Ireland. And I tell you, I have searched this house upside down. I have no idea where it is. I, I put it in a safe place and it is nowhere to be found and I think it was time to go the ring is gone I don't know where it is maybe yeah maybe we're supposed to take it with you or something I wonder if it ever turns up again if that will like spark another idea for you (laughs) I don't know it's just I it's not here I mean I've looked in every single safe I have no idea I wondered if I gave it to one of my sisters but it's just gone so I think that's that's another because it was funny because I only started looking for the ring while I was writing the book and it's like it's gone it's just disappeared yeah well it's a magic ring (laughs) basically yeah that's quite the end like I suppose quite the ending to that story I mean it may not be the ending it may the ring may turn up somewhere but Mm. but if it doesn't it's just like and then it was lost after like what happened to it someone else got it yeah amazing who's gonna find it this also seems like a fantasy thing that like you know in 50 years someone who lives in your house will find the ring (laughs) yeah I don't know what happens after that you're the writer but you know (laughs) um so you know we also mentioned and and you said that you know there's a lot of anger in this book and Savannah is getting angrier lashing out at things feeling this rage build inside her why did you want to explore that in the young adult context because I think it, it might be something that some people think maybe like isn't not necessarily not suitable for young adult literature, but just to sort of, oh, we just won't explore it in that much depth, but you bring it in in such an interesting way as well. So why this angle? I think young adults particularly 
feel in really big ways. I think emotion is so much more exaggerated when you're in that age group. Like it's just like when you're in love, you're in love with capital letters. When you're sad, you're, oh my God, you're the saddest person in the world. You know, and I remember this all from my own, my own time in, in you know, as a 16, 17 year old and um, keeping diaries. If I ever look back to those diaries, the intensity of my emotion was so big. And I think the idea of anger um, in teenage years is also something that's related to pushing boundaries and testing and becoming independent and making that step from your childhood into your adulthood. And, and I think anger is an intrinsic part of that because you've got to, you've got to leave the old guard behind and to push against the old guard, you kind of, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. Um, you need to make your own way forward. And um, so there's going to be some conflict inevitably. And I think anger is an inevitable um consequence of that but I also think that in addition to that the world has gone really bonkers in the last few years I mean I think like it's just been crazy I found, it yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I found myself when I was planning the book I was just like simmering with rage I just found myself so irritable and so easily easily incensed and part of it was because of the world and I was ingesting too much news about what this ridiculous politician said and what that person lied and then became you know just all of this negativity was coming into my head was making me really angry and I think that anger is the same response to an insane world I think the world is is not healthy and I think that to be angry is probably not a bad thing um but then how do we use anger in a way that doesn't destroy us in the process that doesn't burn everything down because anger is also destructive towards the person feeling the anger so how do you use anger in a way that is possibly use, effective helpful that achieves something but doesn't destroy you other things in the process yeah yeah I think that's such an interesting point and I actually think I, I felt a bit silly asking that question because to me it's so obvious that you would explore that in young adult as well yeah because every because, I mean I wrote the question so I can yeah. say I felt silly but like <laughs> every generation has um things that they're obviously angry about and that yeah. the, that the youths get like all riled up about and <laughs> everything youth. but like at the moment there's I mean there's so much with like laws being overturned and no action on climate change and like all you know horrible things with like basic human rights and taking care of the environment that young people seem to be particularly angry right now which I just they, they do seem to be taking action as well like I feel yeah. more than more than we did when we were that age like yeah. I I think like Gen Z like this new generation's coming through you seem to be you know using I mean they're doing it in a different way using TikTok or you know that but you're seeing I think we are seeing yeah. like more I think certainly about stuff like 10 years it, ago like that. people our age were not as proactive yeah. as young people are now yeah um, no I think definitely like it's that I find that so interesting that use of anger yes like you think about the climate change um protests the Greta Thunberg the, you know yes yeah. anger is a part of all of that do you think too that I sometimes feel I think I can get quite angry but I've always felt quite ashamed of that and do you think as as women and as young girls we are sort of conditioned in a way to feel a bit of shame around anger like it's seen as this negative emotion Yes, I think anger is very often weaponized against women, especially um, when you add a race dimension to it, it becomes even more complicated um, because that is a trope in itself, the angry black woman. So it is something that it's funny because if a man gets angry, it is a very different Yeah, most of the situation. time it's seen as quite reasonable and yes, something's yes, like gone reasonable. wrong and it's yes, justified. And, and justified, that's the word. Yeah. Um, that it, it's not questioned. 
in the same way that when women are angry, well, you're hysterical or um, you're aggressive or whatever. So th- there's definitely different ways. Yeah. You're cursed. You're cursed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was a funny thing because as I was writing it, I was realizing, okay, so like we've got it make sure that you're separating this idea of anger as a sort of side effect of the curse and a girl who's cursed to be angry because I didn't want that to be confused because I didn't want there to be a sense of Savannah being Savannah's anger being something that's artificial that's just kind of brought on because of magic um but actually yeah like it's not real it's a real anger it's a justified anger and I think the magic kind of comes in because it allows her to connect to her ancestors anger and I mean, mm. I know, I think there is an idea in which we kind of connect to historical anger or historical trauma or generational um, emotion, but I don't think it's as obvious and as um, it doesn't play out in the way that it works in the book, for sure. So yeah. I think in real life, that is a much more subtle thing. But in the book, I kind of use the magic to kind of make that connection really strong like she is. She has a very strong connection to her slave, the enslaved ancestor, Hela who um whose anger is basically the spark that that sets off everything that happens in the book and i thought that was a really important um connection for me to make and you're right because those connections you do talk a little bit about this in the author's note which is i have flicked back and read that note like three times throughout reading the novel because it is just such a wonderful like extra layer while reading this story but obviously this is, and you talk about this in, in the note, as I said, a story about intergenerational trauma and anger and everything obviously explored through magic. And I think the intergenerational trauma aspect of the story, it is so interesting to explore that in a fantasy world where it's like a curse that's passed down because that's a thing that people, we know how that works, you know. It's like our, every man in the family is cursed or every woman in the family or every firstborn or whatever. Like that's a mm-hmm. thing that people know mm-hmm. from stories and they know exactly. how that works through generations and then it gets passed down. And so I I don't even really know what the question is, but I want you to talk a bit more about actually writing about this curse in Blood to Poison and how it relates to like how it's separate, I suppose, but also relates to the intergenerational trauma in their family. It sounds like then like, yeah, you wanted to start off with something a little bit more lighthearted and yeah, it became to bring these, darker and yeah, deeper. Which is something that I wanted to ask about, like how did you balance that then? Yeah, well, it was hard. It took a lot of rewriting. It took a lot of rewriting because I didn't want trauma to be kind of a fuel for a fun story. Like it needed to be honest and need to be needed to be responsible in how it dealt with that um and it also I didn't want that to be kind of overshadowing the story either so it needed the story was Savannah's story it was about Savannah lifting the curse and I also feel very strongly especially for you know writers of color that we don't always have to write about trauma we don't always have to write about issues we can write about love we can write about girls finding magic we can write about all of those things and um I want readers to primarily experience pleasure when they read the book. That is absolutely my aim. When I was younger, I used to write literary fiction. It was all about ideas and about this image and that image. And that was what I enjoyed back then. But now my biggest takeaway is that I want readers to feel pleasure. I want them to feel. Um, And that for me is the biggest single joy that I could get out of writing is to make somebody feel something and enjoy it. Um, So that is what I really wanted um, to achieve with the book fundamentally. 
But then also, whenever I'm writing things, I was saying to a friend the other days, I keep complicating it. I keep adding these things that complicate it. So then I realized, okay, so we've got anger. We've got um, a country that has got a really difficult past. And I need to be responsible to all these things. I need to be able to address them and to bring them in and to kind of weave them all in together in a way that makes sense and that a reader might pick up something new that they didn't know before and that they can enjoy at the same time. So it was very hard to do that. And I do think that there is, for me anyways, I think it works. Like, you know, I know yeah. not everybody feels the same way about everything. We're all subjective and our experiences of books are subjective. But I'm happy with the balance that 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 was struck in the book because I, I really, really tried very hard to get it right. Yeah, no, it does sound hard. There's a lot going on, that's for sure. And I I don't think that I've ever really read a book set in South Africa before and that is 100% on me. I need to I need to read more widely. Um, but I think what's interesting too is that your previous two YA novels was much more focused on the Irish folklore and bringing in that mythology from where you live now. Um, was it quite fun to go back to the mythology and folklore that you grew up with in South Africa? Yeah, so this is an interesting question because um, a lot of the sort of mythology in the book, the kind of the four sisters, all of that, that's all made up. Like I'm, you know, that's not based on anything particular, but it was very much responding to a South African context. So I wanted the idea of the four sisters because it is such a diverse um, country with people from so many different um, backgrounds and I kind of wanted mm-hmm. that, that I think the forces is to be inclusive so instead of having one sort of main witch figure who comes from one kind of background I wanted all four to be included but then also and all you different know, and yeah. and all different the sun and that you part. can choose you can choose the air it's not automatically passed exactly. on I love that. that was important to me that it's not a bloodline thing that it's not passed on through blood because I have such an issue with inheritance in that way I suppose <laughs> of Africa, where you know, wealth and possession and it was all very much centered on white. So I didn't want yeah. that to be a bloodline thing at all. Um, but um, but then also the Southern Cross. And I think that for those of us who grew up in the Southern Hemisphere, that is like a very distinctive marker of being there. And so yeah. that's why I used that particular star and kind of rewrote myths around that or wrote myths around that, I should say. Um, and also, it was a particular joy for me to write a book where Christmas is in summertime, because that's what a good portion of the world knows it to be. But you know, I know. we love that. We, we love that. Get, <laughs> we still get the songs, I'm, you know, dreaming of a white Christmas and, you know, the snowman yeah. and all that. But it's like, God, tell us about it. We... <laughs> yep. Oh, my yep. God. We, we I 100% understand this. <laughs> Media rant has been had on this podcast about that because we have such a we have such a love for Australian young adult that that is over that summer Christmas yeah. period. Yeah. Love yeah. that because it's it's so rarely explored. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, yeah, like in like American and British, you know, like all these things. That it's like oh, all summer romances and like the yeah. end of school, schools out for summer and everything. And it's like yeah, but in Australia, you also have Christmas at that time. Yeah. Like you know, yeah. so like it's. So much better, honestly. Like, yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> okay, so to get back to the book, um, did you go back to like what were some of the things that you, some of the the things that you grew up with, then that sort of helped you write your own? Oh yes, sort of that's what I was talking about. So there's yeah. there's kind of two levels of 
strange in the book. That's what I like to think of it as. So there's the kind of the level of the made up magic, the kind of the markets and the the witches and and the four sisters and the jackal and all that's invented and that's all made up. Um, the made up magic, the made up strange of the world. But then there's the real strange of the world, which is kind of the the real sense of magic um, that you do get when you're living in South Africa. And South Africa is an interesting place because there is very much a sense of magic jostling along, alongside of the real, like, the, and it works differently depending on where you're from and who, what, you know, how you've been brought up. And, but there really is a sense of that. I remember when I was a lecturer in, um, not at the University of Cape Town, I was working at a different university at this point, and a student came to me and said um, that he couldn't hand in his assignment because his mother had been cursed. I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, sorry, your mother's cursed. So yeah, of course we got hand in your side. You know, see, so and like that's that, that to me was a valid reason for an extension because, you know, these things happen. But um, so there is very much a sense of real magic that kind of just as jostles alongside the, the the you know reality in South Africa. So, and I tried to draw in some of that, and a lot of that in my sort of upbringing would have been around also around ideas of curses and Savannah sort of talks a little bit about the idea of a dukum, which is um, a, sense of ma- a sense of magic within the community that I would have been brought up in. And um, there's also kind of the superstitions, like my mother would have said to us, you know, and this is in the book, like if you come home after midnight, you've got to walk in backwards through the house so yeah. the devils don't follow you inside. And so there was very much a sense of that also. I mean, I, I explained to you earlier that I brought up, I was brought up, with my grandmother, my mother, my, my aunts, who are all these very proper church-going ladies, um, telling us that um, you know the string is cursed. So there was that yeah. sense of magic was very much part of how I perceived the world from a very young age. I love your um, phrasing as well of the real strange and then the strange strange. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. yeah, I love all those little things that. Um, yeah, like the walking home backwards one. And, yeah, there's yeah, one point, it just, isn't it, where Savannah gets home and she's like, I didn't walk in backwards. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it just makes me think that, like, white people and white Australia is just oh, so we boring. have none of this. We have I none know. of that. We have no we culture. Have none of that. No, no. And Indigenous people have amazing stories and I think yeah, and also and a sense of sort of kind of magic maybe not in the same way as in South Africa but there's definitely those stories the generational stories and stuff and like white yeah and the connection to the land and everything so and white people have none oh. of it I know I was no. having this conversation with someone the other day we should be taught about, this stuff in schools um just about Jewish um traditions like that even if you're not necessarily actively religious there's still lots of jewish traditions with holidays mm. and food and everything and i was like mm. even catholicism doesn't have any of that like if you decide you don't want to go to church anymore that's kind of it there's no like food. i still feel weird about i still feel yeah. weird about eating fish on good friday though yeah yeah but that's just catholic guilt like that's just <laughs> that's all it leaves you that's all catholicism <laughs> is it's guilt that's you all it to, is <laughs> you need to move to ireland then because there is very much a sense of kind of Catholicism as a culture here. So like a lot of people that I know here wouldn't be necessarily practicing Catholics in terms of going to church every day, every, but they're kind of culturally Catholic. So the kids do the First Holy Communion and there's these certain rites of passage. And it is fully oh, yeah. like, because I'm actually not Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, so I kind of have a good grasp of, of how it all works. But um, my, my husband, my children are. So 
we kind of do all those things, but it is more of a cultural thing than a religious thing. So That's it's a quite good point, actually, is that there probably yeah. still is that element of, yeah, like you, you know, you have a baptism or something like that, and then you do like reconciliation and first communion and stuff while you're at school and you're doing it with all your friends and everything. And then beyond that, but yeah, I, I guess I'm just jealous that Jews have so much like, there's so much food, like specific food that they get to eat. I just want the food. The food, yeah, food, food, food is a whole other like um, dimension, and I I enjoyed including that in the book as well. Sort of like yeah. making reference to the food, the kind of food that I would have grown up with. Um, so mm. there was definitely a lot of that thrown into the book as well. Yeah, 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 in the markets and and that yeah. sort of atmosphere. Yeah, I love that. Were and you writing like- this book like over? Um, like pandemic and quarantine and everything I assume you weren't yeah. haven't been able to go back for some time well it was it was such um it was such a tricky point because I started writing I wrote it in 2019 so I was going to go back oh, okay. in 2019 but then just for for kind of logistic reasons I couldn't make it back that year and then I was going to go back like beginning of 2020 um so I was planning the trip for March 2020. <laughs> oh, and we know <laughs> what happened then. Uh, yes. Like, yeah. yeah, no, this isn't. So, um, so yes, I didn't narrate a voiceover. And then. <laughs> it, it did not happen. So basically mm. I ended up having to write it like from memory, from um, just YouTube videos, like occasionally. It was like, okay, what does that look like again? Sort of like going back and yeah. then just kept checking things out. But um I did go back. I went back um, last year in November. Oh, great. So there were a few things that I did change. It's like, okay, quickly, that I got wrong. I need to quickly just, um, so it was, it was, it was, it had already been edited at that point, but there was room for me to make a few changes um, because of um, just realizing a few things, having been back to visit um, that that I could update it or make it a bit more accurate, uh, but yeah. most things were actually yeah. fine. I got I, I you know I've lived in the country for for most of my life, so I I do know it pretty well. Yeah, yeah, good. Well, yeah. I'm glad you still got to go back before the book. Came oh, it is magical going back. It was so good because I I literally went to a lot of the places in the book. So I went up to the the old abandoned zoo, which is the most magical place. It's like right on the kind of back slopes of 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 Devil's Peak. Um, which is kind of part of the Table Mountain on the other side of Table Mountain. So it's like major, you know, like in the very close to the city centre, you know, right there on the mountain. But nobody really seems to go there. And the day we went there, I went with my sister and, and her dogs. There was a, a homeless man who was sleeping in one of the cells. It was very unnerving because he kept shouting while we were there. So it was quite, it was quite strange. It, the whole thing felt really surreal. And I went to see the... Iziko um, slave lodge. So I went into the slave lodge and where they'd sought, where they'd um, housed a lot of the enslaved people, and um, we went to see the the slave tree as well, which is where they would have sold some of these people, um, as well as Green Market mm-hmm. Square. And it was just a really incredible going through the 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 Iziko slave lodge because it really kind of you get a real sense of 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 the history of that particularly brutal reality um and that, that was quite something to to be able to do and I really I would have loved to have been able to do that while I was writing the book but I'm very glad I got to do it anyways because it was necessary the, the the museum has got a online presence so there's a lot of information online and I consulted that a lot while I was writing <laughs> yeah 
Yeah. Good. I know there's, I think people are probably always amazed how much research there is in writing, even Mm -hmm. like fiction. Yeah. Um, And even not necessarily, you know, obviously people would assume there's research for historical fiction or anything, but even like, you know, pretty standard contemporary fiction authors still like google maps how long does it take to get from Mm. this place to this place how far away is this bar from where their house would be all of that i i'm not a very certain person like i need to be certain of something before i can put it onto paper so i um if i'm writing about a doctor for example i wouldn't you know every single doctor i know has had me basically pounce upon them and say (laughs) what about this and what about this um and you know even like the burn the burns in the book um i had you know my sister-in-law who actually lives in new zealand um who's a burn specialist there and she she talked me through the burns and look if i made mistakes never got if i took liberties that's obviously on me but um, but also bizarrely, while as you know, in the book, one of the main characters has got a kind of burn scar on his shoulder, and in the book, the girl, one of the women, plunges her hands into fire, and then somebody else gets their hands burned. Uh, while I was writing the book, I ended up burning my hand, and it was oh. really weird because you kind of have these senses of, of like these echoes of your fiction stepping outside <laughs> really? of the constraints of the book and kind of bursting into reality. I burned it really, really badly; like the skin completely came off. Oh. Um, uh. Yeah, so it was just really, oh my God, like, is this real? Is this fiction? I'm not quite sure. <laughs> have I cursed myself by writing? Yeah, yeah, yeah like, I cursed myself. Myself. oh my <laughs> goodness. Wow. Um, and so, moving away from the book specifically um, and just talking about your writing more generally, this year you were announced as the winner of the Philida Literary Award. Congratulations. Can you tell us a little bit about that award? Because I understand it has quite a strong history. Um, and I'd love to hear what that means to you. Yeah, I was absolutely delighted by that and, and totally surprised as well. Um, so, so the Philida Award is set up in the memory of Andre Brunk, who is one of, um, you know, one of South Africa's um, long-standing writers. He's, he's, he was he wrote for many generations and um, you know won international prizes. Was very well known. But he um, was also my supervisor, so it was particularly touching for me that 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 I would win this because he, when I was doing my master's in creative writing, um, one I wasn't sure I was going to do it. I decided that I was going to like move over to information systems or something, and I, I was basically sitting in these lectures in these information systems lectures, feeling absolutely miserable. And then I took the writing that I had and I went to his pigeonhole and I kind of popped it into his pigeonhole thinking, you know, what will happen? Um, what have I tempted fate? What, what, what box yeah. have I opened and what monsters have I unleashed? And then he got in touch with me and said, you know, let's talk. And he called me and, and he loved it. And it was just amazing. And it really kind of, we started working together. He supervised my masters, but even beyond supervising my masters, he stayed, we stayed friends and he, was always just such an encouraging presence um, in my writing life. You know, you need that somebody who's there saying, keep going, keep going, it's worth it, you you can do this. And he, he was that person for me for a very long time. And I was very, very lucky to have that. And so I'm particularly moved to be awarded this prize that was set up in his honour because he was a very, very important figure in my writing life. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's amazing. What a lovely story. Such a nice story. That's yeah, so nice. yeah. He was such a gentleman. He was really such a. He died in two thousand and fifteen. It's sort of a recognition of all your work, isn't it? It's not for a particular book. 
Yeah, it's kind of a mid-career prize. So I, before I left South Africa, I published, well, actually not before, well, um, I published two books in South Africa. So um, the one was a collection of short stories and the other one was a kind of what was described as a literary thriller, which basically means a slow-paced thriller. So instead of like, <laughs> it was very slowly. Um, so, and then after I wrote that, I realized that I wanted to write a fantasy and then um I kind of was reading a lot of YA at the time and then wrote this book, I wrote The Red Hunt and got to the end of it, the first draft of it, looked at it and went, I didn't mean to do this, but I've written YA. And so basically <laughs> everything that I've been reading kind of fed into what I was writing mm-hmm. and I ended up having written a YA inadvertently. And then obviously, you know, I made the adjustments, but in the revision, like aged her down a bit and also just kind of brought up certain themes that were more suitable for, for YA than, than, than not. So adjusted it to put to be YA. Um, but yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I, I ended up accidentally stumbling into writing YA <laughs> fiction. And are you quite happy to sort of, we love YA, but like, yeah. how, do, would you go back to adult or are you happy yes, to sort of yes, stick in this age I range? Definitely have plans to return to adult. And also I will stick to writing YA as long as it's, it, it makes me happy. And I think that that's kind of the, whatever I write is, whenever I write a book, whenever I sit down to write a book, I'm writing something that I want to read. So as long as I'm happy to keep reading it, I'm happy to keep writing it. But if I'm not happy to keep writing it then then we move on yeah so yeah, for now I yeah. am I I do have uh my I have a I have children and my son is now turning 14 this month and I'm kind of wondering like you you when you have your own teenagers like I don't really want to be thinking about what they're getting up to behind my back <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah maybe I think over the years yeah. we've heard quite mixed things about when that happens like when your children yeah. your own children yeah. are teenagers and you write it's, YA I'm 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 kind of only at the brink of it because he's 13 now so like I'm not sure like do I want to keep going and go with him on this journey through my writing in some ways or do I just kind of give him that space I don't know I'm not sure yeah. I, but that's not the main factor for me the main consideration would be what is the book that I want to read I love that I think that translates to you when you're writing something that you genuinely want to read and it, it just comes across you can tell when an author has written that because they're really passionate about it. it's genuinely something that they would want to read yeah so you did mention that you you published books in South Africa as well can we sort of go back a little bit how did you sort of get that publishing deal going from those lectures and that first scary like someone else reading your work how did you get your first book deal so I am um, I was very lucky because I came out of it with I, I I was very firmly entrenched in the whole academic environment at that point so I was doing my master's and when I finished my master's I went straight into my PhD and um, I was very much in that kind of ivory tower setting which made things a lot easier in, in a lot of ways um, it was hard to get into that setting but once I got in I think once once you're in sort of specific community things become a lot easier so yeah. it's quite comfortable I guess you've got a good job and yeah and yeah. and you've got connections so what what happened for me was that Andre was really my champion and he made the introductions that I needed and he was largely responsible for me sending that first book out into the world which then starts you make that connection which then makes more connections and obviously um and obviously winning the cane 
helped in terms of getting the second published. But then that all kind of stepped back because I kind of took a bit of a career break in around the 2010. I had babies and my mother was diagnosed with cancer. So things um, got, you know, my personal life kind of overshadowed work life at that point. And I kind of retreated for a little bit. And um, when I returned, I knew that I was switching to genre fiction, no more literary, and I wanted to write fantasy. So I knew that it was a very different path that I was kind of setting out. So I kind of started a second time in some ways, yeah. and that I didn't that I wanted to publish. Um, because when I, when I published The Cutting Room, I was living in Ireland and the book was published in South Africa. And you can't, it's very difficult to publish a book in a country where you're not living um, when there isn't kind of a, a kind of international factor to it. So the book was already published in South Africa and there was such a distance between me and that book that I don't know. Yeah. I, could, I couldn't hold its hand. I couldn't work with it in, in, in the way I needed to. Um, so I needed to publish here. Um, and... So that was a new journey. And I basically went through the same channels as everybody else, you know, sending to or, um, to querying agents, sending to submission of, um, files and ended up with one with basically my dream agent and the rest is history. Yeah. Wow. There you go. I mean, yeah, it's so interesting that you kind of had to do it twice like you said yeah, you did kind yeah of it's start almost again. like the first the first books didn't really count in a way because yeah you no, have to start again you had to pitch again yeah I, I had things way. under my back under my belt so like sure the cover letter maybe looked like I kind of had a bit of the experience I don't know if that counted but absolutely I firmly believe that that the book spoke for itself and that Mm. you know that that was the main thing is what what is the story that I'd written at that particular point that that made it get selected yeah so yeah especially as you're switching yeah like age ranges genres yeah. it, it yeah. almost yeah. switching to from adults yes it doesn't matter to them that you've you know no. this is what you've done for adults yeah. when they're marketing to to young adults yeah the, it's very interesting the, the one thing I always well I have to because I go mad if I didn't believe this is that I do believe that all work is work done so whatever you've deleted, whatever you've written and put away, whatever you've written and it's all 10 copies of, um, that's all work. It all contributes. It all all takes you steps further. It makes you better at what you're doing. Um, And that's really helpful. It's really useful and it's it's important. So all work is work done, you know, everything. Like in all of these, particularly these last three books, um, The Renan, The Wickelite and um, blood to poison there's a lot of revision that goes in so I, I always say that the book itself is the tip of the iceberg so basically that's the kind of bit that you're seeing but the, what I've actually written is the, the iceberg that's underneath and the bits that have been deleted yeah. so yeah but I do believe that that's really important because that just gets me better at writing but also gets the story better at what needs to be so basically what you end up with is yeah. the very best story um, that it, that I could possibly write at this time yeah, yeah. absolutely Mm, what totally advice agree. do you think you would give yourself pre-publication either time I suppose like when you were trying again in Ireland or before your first works were published in South Africa I think one of the one of the things I've kind of been reflecting on a lot lately is the, the idea of writing and what happens when you make your art your career and how how you manage that and I think that that is possibly an area that can get quite fraught because 
if something is your career, you want to do well with it. You want to see achievement. You want to see progress. You want to reach goals. And like, I think when you have a career, there's a kind of way of talking about a career, which is always a kind of a, a progression. But then when you're talking about art, it's something else. It's about creation and it's about finding the stories inside you. And then what happens when you're kind of putting these two things together? How do they fit together? I'm not entirely sure. Like, so there's these questions that I'm kind of asking myself. So I think for me, I noticed that it is really important to stay connected to that kind of true impulse of writing rather than the impulse of the career. So when I write to stay connected to the, the art of creation rather than the end product that it's going to be when it gets released into the world. So like there's this kind of dialogue that goes on in my head around these things. And, and also just because as I get older in the world, like just what I consider to be important becomes more about what's internal and what's spiritual and what's good for my soul. And that's kind of what I want to emphasize is what's good for me, what's good for my soul, not what's external. That, wow, yeah, very well put. Great advice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can all learn a lot from that. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us on Better Words today. We really appreciate it. Oh, it's been so lovely to meet you and chat with you guys. Um, really enjoyed it. Thank you. <laughs> so where can people find and follow you online? I'm not very often on Twitter, but um, the handle Literally is... every guest says this, so don't I know. worry. <laughs> <laughs> People are there, but not all the time anymore. You know, it's we're talking about what's good for the soul and what's external. Twitter is bad for my soul. Like when I go on yeah. it, I basically mm-hmm. find myself doom scrolling Boris Johnson, and like that is not good for my soul. <laughs> yeah, so, never good. No, so I just avoid it if I can. I am try not to go in there. Um, because I just know that it's not good for me, and I know that everybody has different experiences of it. Some people have great experiences. Um, I don't, so I, I try to avoid it as much as I can. Um, but I, I'm, I am there, and I check it occasionally, um, and it's Mary M underscore Watson. And I am more often on Instagram because I love pretty pictures. I just love looking at pretty pictures. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> yeah. there, I'm there for the pretty pictures. And it's also Mary M underscore Watson. Thank you so much. <laughs> really, thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Better Words. You can chat to us on Instagram at betterwordspod. And follow me, Michelle, at Unfinished Bookshelf. And me, Caitlin, at Just a Bookish Babe. If you liked this episode, please share it with a book-loving friend and leave a rating or review.